We are in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, if you want to take a moment and turn there now. You know, as we come into this passage, I spent a, quite a bit of time thinking about how this works out and what this looks like in our lives and, and how to uh, apply it. And I, I started thinking back over it, and, and one of the things you've got to decide in this text is, because Paul lists about 19 pretty unpopular character traits of these people, you've got to figure out who they are and, and, and where they are. And I, I firmly believe that they are inside the church, that he's describing people inside the church, not on a way to make them feel bad about themselves, but just a recognition that these are, these are lost people masquerading as Christians effectively. But the difficult thing, and this is the, the way that I've been able to think about it and understand it in, in my life, and understand it through a story that will hopefully make sense and connect. Uh, when I was in college, uh, my roommates and I decided that, that we wanted to play uh, softball in the city league. Now, we had played uh, at the rec league, and one of my neighbors looked a lot like me, and I would take his ID, and so I would play A&M rec, and sometimes I'd play Sam rec. And, and, but we decided it would be you know, a lot more fun to play in the city league. These guys were more competitive. And so when we went up to, to sign up for the leagues, we, we looked, and they had, I mean, like half a dozen choices, everything from like the A-plus league, and I'm thinking most of these guys probably played minor league ball, and I clearly don't want to play with them, all the way down to like D-league, and I'm thinking most of these guys, I mean, I could out-throw them left-handed, and I'm right-handed, and, I, you know, I want it to be a little bit of a challenge. I had a friend that played in the D-league, and he said many of the guys on his team had never played before, and I said, well, that's... Uh, clearly, I don't want to play with them. And then they said, look, you can drop down in the tournament to a, a lower level. I said, we're not going to need that. Highly athletic. One of the guys on our team had walked on A&M's football team. I mean, just the guy had muscles in his earlobes. Not very bright, but um, very, very strong. It uh, doesn't really matter for softball, apparently. But, uh, and so we, we picked this ridiculous name. We were 50 Cent. We thought that was ironic. And uh, that was the name of our team, a bunch of white guys with black t-shirts with the sleeves ripped off, and, and this story's really going downhill fast. And so we went, we signed up, we paid our money, and, and we were college kids, none of us had any money, and so we decided that we would go buy the most expensive bat we could find at Academy, so we pulled all our money together, and we bought a, a $40 Nike softball bat, and, which, if you play much softball, I mean, you might as well be, you know, hitting it with your mom's ladle because it's, when, when it gets into spending money on bats, we didn't realize it at the time, but we showed up to our first game and our opposing team, we've all got like shorts and, you know, sleeveless shirts on, and our opposing team walk out, and they have matching uniforms. It's never a good feeling, um, whether to a wedding or a softball game, if your opponents are best better, dressed better than you are. And so they came out, and they had several bats in cases. Yet again, not, not, not a great feeling. And so they walk out, and they've got several of these, like three and $400 softball bats, and they're hanging them on the fences. And, and it was just awkward. I mean, we were there to play softball, but they were there to embarrass us. And, and they did. And we had made the great mistake of inviting a number of our friends and you know, girlfriends and girls we wanted to impress and, and, and guys we were friends with. Uh, again, bad idea. Probably should have had them come to the second game when we'd seen how the first one turned out. And well, we get out on the field and, and we start, you know, playing the game and it gets out of hand real fast. I mean, 
it, it got out of hand very, very fast, and I've never actually uh, had, had needed or been thankful for the run rule before, but I was very thankful for it that day. Um, at some point, it's just not fun to continue to lose that bad, right? I mean, we had paid to play, but they had, they had paid to win. I still think that they paid off the guy somehow that they were using a rubberized ball and we were using a lead weight because when we hit it, it barely, rarely went out of the infield. When they hit it, it went over the fence. So, but you know, if, if you had been there that day, you would recognize us all as softball players and you would recognize that there were those that were there that day that were clearly dressed to play, they'd rehearsed to play, and they played the game very differently than, than we did. They very, very differently than we did, in fact. But the difficulty when we come to church is that when, we, when you come into this church, we don't ask you, now, are, are you a Christian, and can you pass this 50-question test? And if you can't, and if you aren't, then you dress like this. But if you can, and you are, then you dress like that. Or, you know, that section over there isn't reserved for non-Christians, and this section's for Christians. It's difficult to tell who is a believer and who's a non-believer, right? It's difficult. But when Paul writes and addresses this group, what he's letting them know is you're only going to figure this out by investigation. You're not going to figure it out by the way they dress. You're not going to figure it out by where they live. You're going to discover who they are based upon these characteristics in their life. But even these characteristics are masked, as we'll see. Let's walk through this together. Paul writes it in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, but understand this, in the last days will come times of difficulty. So the question becomes in our mind, is Paul writing of some future event that's going to take place, or is he addressing uh, Timothy in his current situation? Well, the New Testament understanding, in our mind, the New Testament understanding was that the, the end times began right then. Now, if we were to engage in conversation and you're really preoccupied with the book of Revelation and all these studies in Daniel, you're looking for some future event that's going to transpire. And when you start thinking about, you know, people will be bad and all these things are going to get worse, you start looking at your newspaper, right? And so maybe you were reading the newspaper a couple of weeks ago and you saw that in the country of Belgium they legalized euthanasia for children with no age restrictions. And so you read that and you say, man, how awful is that? Why would, why would we want to do that? Or maybe you're, you're reading the newspaper last week and you saw that in New York City, more African-American children were terminated in pregnancy than came to be born. That 40% of all of those procedures performed in New York City were on African-American children. That 37% of those procedures were performed on Hispanic children. You say, how awful is that? That that the rate of murder of the innocents would, would surpass the rate of births. And so you look at those things and you say, clearly, clearly... The time is approaching, and the end times are here. But when we see the way Paul addresses it here, he says, look, these end times began with Christ's ascension, and they will continue until his return. But look how he marks it. 
He says these times are going to be difficult, they're going to be awful, they're going to be horrific. You're going to suffer. And for what reason? Because people will be there. That's not great, right? It's not great to see that the reason these times are going to be so difficult is because of people, because we like to think of people being naturally good. Remember, the Bible gives us this really clear picture, picture that humanity is actually bent towards evil. Humanity is bent against God. We are not neutral, but we are naturally predisposed to be antagonistic towards God. But the difficulty becomes then. See, it wasn't that Paul wrote Timothy and said, Timothy, look at your surrounding culture. Those people are going to be difficult. And these are things that Timothy could have readily testified to. The Roman Empire as a whole was antagonistic towards Christians. They considered Christians to be atheists because they didn't worship the multiplicity of gods that the Romans did. They thought that many Christians were working to destabilize the empire. They were antagonistic towards this movement. They really just wanted them to stay a very small sect and and to really be very quiet. But the difficulty is, is this. Paul is addressing people in the church, not the culture. So when we look at this list, you're not thinking about this guy you work with who loves himself. You're not thinking about this lady you've seen who, who loves money. You're not thinking about the actors in Hollywood who love pleasure rather than God. You're thinking about lost people in church. And that's what makes this so difficult. Let's look at this list together. He says, people will be lovers of self. It seems that as we go through this list, most of the things in it find their genesis in this first problem. These people are lovers of self. They have this misplaced understanding that they are the be-all and end-all. It is all about them. They're the most important person. They are the highest feature of their religion. They have, in fact, made themselves out to be an idol. They love themselves. They're enamored with themselves. Now look what follows after that, and it makes sense. If somebody loves themselves, if they make decisions largely based upon that that, that Matt is the be-all and end-all, that those things which give Matt pleasure are those things I should do and those things that don't bring me pleasure are those things I should avoid, then I'm going to need something to bankroll that, right? And if, if I am a lover of self, then I find myself quickly being one who loves money. Because it takes money to make this happen. It takes money to let me do all the fun things that, that, that I need to do. It takes money to satisfy those desires in me and to feed back into my love of self. Man, this is a truly horrendous list when we look at these character traits. He says these people are proud. They have a mistaken understanding that all the things that have happened in their life, they have affected that they have done with no one's assistance. They neglect to recognize the impact of anyone. They are proud. They are arrogant. They're so completely stuck on themselves and and how the world revolves around them and they are at the center point of their own universe. 
Now look, as we move into this next group, we see that they are abusive. They are abusive. Now the interesting thing about this, when we come to this word, is this is a translation that can be taken as being blasphemous. This person isn't abusive in so much as it's described in this word as going out and punching people in the face, but they are abusive in their verbal response and their intellectual response to God. They're antagonistic towards him. Now, it's pretty interesting. He says that these people are disobedient to their parents. Now, this is something I certainly would not have wanted to read or be a part of when I was in high school. I was, you know, passively disobedient. And, and really what that looks like is I was disobedient, but they just didn't find out about it. And, and my parents no longer subscribe to, the, uh, to, this, to this feed, and so they won't hear this on iTunes. And so I feel very comfortable telling you this. But what is Paul talking about there when he says that they are disobedient to parents? You see, if you flip back over to 1 Timothy 5, in this description of widows, we see that there are certain individuals in their community that are not caring, that are not providing for their family members. And what does Paul say about them? He says they are worse than an unbeliever. They are worse than an unbeliever. Look at this, they are ungrateful. They're ungrateful. So every time somebody does something for them, the common grace of God that extends towards them, they don't recognize that. They don't return that in thanks. They don't return that in thanksgiving. They're completely unmoved by that thing. They're ungrateful. He says they're unholy, heartless, unappeasable. This person simply not satisfied with anything outside of those things which impact them, which satisfy them. It says they have no self-control. They are brutal, not loving good. They are treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. I mean, this isn't the type of person that you want to have in your house, is it? You don't want somebody to come in your house that has no self-control, that is reckless, that will will throw you under the bus, that will will seek to advance themselves with, with no thought to how it affects somebody else. Imagine if Glenn and Linda were this awful, hideous, terrible couple that, that had at least half of these attributes. Sorry. That had at least half of these attributes. These aren't people you want to spend much time with. These aren't people you want your kids spending much time with. Because they're, they're operating from this selfish mindset that says it doesn't matter what happens to anybody else as long as I'm satisfied, as long as it doesn't infringe upon my freedoms, upon my choices, upon my own sense of autonomy. They're not operating in community. They're operating on an island. They're operating on an island. And look at how he ends this. He says these people are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, if you were to break this list into three areas, you could say that these people are narcissistic, materialistic, and hedonistic. These people are narcissistic. Everything responds back to them. They are at the center of everything. They are materialistic. They want money. They want all of these things to drive their pleasure. And lastly, they are hedonistic. They are lovers of pleasure. They want this physical response. They want to be pleased. Anything that gives them pleasure 
is free game. Anything that satisfies self is free game. And he puts that beside being lovers of God. He puts that beside being lovers of God. But look at the summary statement that Paul offers us in verse 5. So you have people that have all of these character, characteristics, they have all of these traits. And Paul comes into verse 5 and he says that these people have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. You see how difficult it is to discern who these people are? There's a decent chance we have some of these people here today. They have nothing but the appearance of godliness. They have this thin veneer of spirituality. They know the right answers to a lot of the questions. They're frequent in attendance. They come, they show up, they might even give. They sing, they stand, they clap, they dance. They might even sway back and forth with their arms in the air. But the point he makes is, it doesn't matter what they look like on the outside. Because for them, godliness is nothing more than an appearance, a facade, a thin veneer. Because they have completely denied the power of godliness. See, there's been no true effectual life change in this person. There's been no true understanding of Christianity that has affected a change in them and a surrender to God and salvation. They've chose to have God their way, and in reality, they have no part in him. They've chosen to, to tap into all the things they like about church. They remind me in some ways of, of the Unitarian I met some years ago. I was out in Fort Worth, and we were sharing the gospel, and I met this guy, and we started talking about the gospel, and I said, well, you know, effectively, what do you think? And he said, well, i got to be honest. I'm a Unitarian. And I said, well, that's strange. I think it's one of the first times I'd ever heard that. I said, well, what in the world does that mean? He said, well, to be honest, and I wanted to be like, man, dude, there's a lot of honesty happening in this conversation. Um, he said, to be honest, I really just go to the Unitarian church to meet certain social obligations and goals and, and projections that I've set for myself. You see, I'm a very driven person, and I think I need to engage people, and the Unitarian church just seems to be a great place to do that. I'm not really even sure what they believe. I think you can believe anything there. You see, this guy had found his niche in a group of people that subscribe to a certain kind of morality, but really it was under this loose collaboration that whatever I believe shouldn't impact what you believe and what you believe shouldn't impact what anybody else believes. And almost every church will have people like this. People whose religion is really nothing more than a cult of self. People whose understanding of God isn't rooted in life transformation but is rooted in self preservation. People whose understanding of God goes no deeper than that outward shell and appearance that we see. And look at what Paul's call is. Now understand this is difficult and this is something I have struggled with all week. Paul's call in his instruction to Timothy regarding such people is that they should be avoided. They should be avoided. When it comes to Timothy, 
he should avoid such people. But I'm, 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 I'm thinking on this and I'm reflecting and thinking, well, how does this work out with what you told him earlier? How do you, how do you be kind to everybody? How do you patiently endure evil? How do you, in verse 25, how do you correct them with gentleness if I'm caught up avoiding them? How does that even work? What does that look like? And the text doesn't give us just an amazing answer on that. You see, the, the call of Timothy is to work diligently for the protection of the flock. The call for Timothy is to be so invested in the lives of his people, to to know them, to know their hearts, to know where they're at, that he he is able to recognize those who have nothing more than a thin veneer, and he is able to recognize those who have lived fully surrendered lives to Christ. I mean, this happens over time. This isn't something where he walks into the church, or a pastor today walks into the church, and God zaps them with this vision where they can see everybody, where I stand here and I look out and I'm like, Christian, non-Christian, Christian, non-Christian. Well, let's skip that one. Christian, non-Christian, Christian. It'd be great if it happened that way, but it doesn't. You discover this through extended exposure and extended experience. But the word to Timothy is when you discover these people, You've already engaged them. You've already addressed the issues in their life. But they refuse to relent. These people you mark out so they don't cause damage to the flock. You see, because Timothy's call and every pastor's call is for the preservation and protection of the fold. And many times, you'll find hungry wolves that are adorning themselves in sheep's clothing, just waiting, lying in wait for some opportune moment where they might pounce, where they might reach out and grab somebody. And look how he describes a certain subset of that group in verse 6. He said, among these people, among those who are marked as lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, among these people, you've got an even more destructive force among them and this is why he has to avoid them among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions now maybe you read this and you're just automatically offended and you say paul you are such a sexist pig i cannot believe you would refer mickle's laughing i cannot believe you would refer to these women as weak Paul, isn't your mind, can it be elevated? Don't don't you know, Matt, that we've had a, a, a women's movement since then. You can't repeat that. You need to substitute that and say, yeah, people, weak people, weak-minded people. But you see, Paul is describing an actual historical account. The actual literal translation is little women, but that makes me think of the book. And that makes me think of painful, painful reading. And then I think of the movie. And I think of many, many nice naps. Paul says, you've got these guys, and they're sneaking into homes. They're worming their way into the homes of certain women. And these certain women, not all women in Ephesus, but these certain specific few are burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. 
Now, likely, these women are quite wealthy. That's why these false teachers want them. That's that's why they want them to follow them. It's why they want them to move away from the teaching of Paul, from the teaching of Timothy. They want them to follow them because they are wealthy. These women are burdened with sin. They are overburdened. They, They feel the tremendous weight on their chest, on their shoulders. Likely, every time they join in the fellowship, they're just wrecked with this understanding of all the awful things they've done before. And then you've got the opportunistic man who he comes and he comes to visit them and he knocks on their door. She opens the door and she says, oh, it's so good to see you. So, you know, I can, I can tell you, look, you look like you've just got the weight of the world on your shoulders. You look like the world is just abusing you and it's just, it's just really getting too much for you, isn't it? She might respond and say, how do you know me so well? That's exactly what's taking place. How, do you, how, how can you see that? How do you know me that well? I said, man, God just told me I needed to come talk to you. Mind if I come in? She said, won't you? Won't you have a seat? She's moved from her doorstep into her house. They're sitting in her living room, exchanging conversation. He says, I've got something that can radically, radically change your life. I've got something that can relieve all of this burden. I've got something that can make you feel better about yourself. I've got something that I can give you that will make all the pain and all the anguish and all the hurt go away. And this woman who's so weary, so tired. And this guy has the cure. So she lashes onto him. And the way the text describes it, he says that he takes her captive. This idea of capturing these women... This word is used to describe if we were to go into war and we bring back, bring back prisoners of war. That is exactly what he's doing. He's using his philosophical lasso to go in and show her how his piece of information, how his knowledge can relieve all the stress, all the anxiety, all the things in her life. And she's so burdened with sin and so tossed around and, and used to following her passions that she buys in hook, line, and sinker. I started thinking through this this week, and, and it's not in the church. But one of the clear places this happens today, you've got a young girl. She goes out, she gets pregnant, she's in a relationship with someone. Maybe something happens to her. She sees a commercial, she sees a flyer, she's got somebody that comes along and befriends her and says, look, I can make all of this better for you. It's a temporary thing we can do, but you need to love yourself enough to make this hard choice. It's not very expensive. It can drive you there if you'd like. The people there just want to help you. They just want to help you out of this bad situation you've gotten yourself into. 
So they load up this young woman who is burdened with sins. Burdened with the weight of the world. And they offer her a quick fix that will plague her the rest of her life if she takes their word. We have a whole industry today that is built on deception. We have a whole industry today that lives to, to supply the lie that the individual, that the self is the highest thing to be satisfied, to be worshipped, to be adored. And it is preying on those people who just want release, who just want freedom, who just want to be unburdened. And that's why in New York City, we terminated more lives in the African-American community than were born. It's unbelievable. That's exactly what these men do. They look for people that want release and they prey on them. Well, look at these women. Let's transition back to them. It says these women are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. See, the mistake for the women in the text is they saw salvation in the attaining of much knowledge. They, they mistakenly assumed that salvation could be gained, could be brought into their lives with the amassing of information. And so every philosophy that came along, every study that came along, every book that is put out, they would get it and they would read it and they would bring it into their lives and thinking, surely if I add this into my life and that into my life, I can get to a place of being free and to experiencing release. But the text tells us they were always learning, always bringing in knowledge, but they were never able to arrive and a knowledge of the truth. You see, they saw salvation as coming through information instead of salvation coming through a Savior. There's this great sense of, of humbling and of humility that has to take place in order for us to be saved. We release ourselves, our lives, our goals, all the things we set before us, we deny self in order to be saved. These women sought to affect salvation on their own and, and to do such through the amassing of much information. Now, interestingly, Paul goes in and in verse, verses 8 and 9, and he compares these men, those who sneak into houses and take women captive, to two individuals in Exodus. Now, these men are named Jonas and Jambres, and he says, Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. He describes them, and he says, These men are corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Their minds are are obliviated. They're so ingrained in understanding their own philosophy and things that they are corrupt, they are disqualified, they've been tested and found wanting regarding the faith. But look at the promise, he says, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as it was of those two men. Well, if we were to flip over and look at Exodus 7, 8, in 9, what we see in there is a pattern where Moses and Aaron, they go to Pharaoh. They said, Pharaoh, we want you to let our people go. And Pharaoh says, I've, I've got other plans for them. They're this great labor force. I'd rather not. 
And, and, and Moses says, Aaron, throw down the staff. So Aaron takes his staff, he throws it down, and it turns into a serpent. Pharaoh looks at his crew and says, y'all got this? They say, bro, we're there for you. So they come out, they throw down their staffs, they turn into snakes, and this fight breaks out between the serpents. Aaron comes over, his snake, and it gobbles them up. It swallows them whole. It is ooh, you're right. So he comes back. He says, Pharaoh, you need to let my people go. He's like, man, come on now. And so they turn the Nile to blood. Pharaoh's magicians come out and they are able to reproduce or do something similar. We see again, Moses comes back and he says, look, we're going to give you a plague of frogs. Pharaoh's guys get together and they say, we can do the same thing. He comes back one more time in gnats. He says, look, we're going to send gnats out. Gnats are going to be everywhere. Pharaoh's guys, they get over there. They pull out their bag of tricks. They begin to pull out. And they're like, man, we got the frog. We got the blood mixture. We got, we got the, the, oh, they ate the snakes. We don't have that anymore. But we, we can't do the gnats. And for everybody there, it was readily apparent that their power and their authority was limited, but the power and authority of Yahweh God was everlasting and all-powerful. And it quickly became to be apparent that there was a limit to the power of Jonas and Jambres. But Yahweh God, his power knew no end. You know, as we look at this list, and you might ask yourself, well, what is this what does this do for me, Matt? Are you going to put together a team of investigators and we're going to be searching out for all of those hidden fake Christians and when we find them, we're going to turn our backs on them and they're going to sit over there in that section and we don't let them talk to anybody. We give them a special parking place over there by Alliance. It's a good idea. Maybe we should talk later. I hadn't thought about that. No. See, the takeaway for this, These are people that went to church. These are people that were a part of the fellowship. But the takeaway for this is when we look at the head descriptor on this, these people were lovers of self. Take that. Keep that in your mind. We flip over and we see Jesus' words in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. Jesus is, is wrangling With the teachers of the law, he says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Man, they thought they had him. They thought they had Jesus over a barrel. Jesus responds and he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these commandments depends all the law and the prophets. So you look at this list and you think, this isn't me. I have surrendered my life to Christ. I know that for a fact. This isn't me. But when you make selfish decisions, when you make decisions and when your thought process begins to be, I'm more concerned with, with satisfying myself than serving someone else. You violate the second principle that Jesus talked about. Loving your neighbor as yourself. You're quickly moving towards becoming a lover of self. You see, as we saw in the example from Second Chronicles, 
It's not enough to keep the rules. It's not enough to be moral. He wants your heart. I want you to give it all over to him. And when you give him your heart, there's no place, there's no room for selfish motivation. Because when you start making decisions from self and, and how to accommodate your schedule and how to do all of these things for you, you're choosing yourself over God. And that's going to look different for each and every one of us. See, that's both the beautiful and the difficult thing of Christianity. There's no amount of rule following that you can do that will get you into heaven. But a full-bore, surrendered heart will be transformative, and he will lead you to do things that you never thought capable of. He will ask things of you that you never thought you'd be able to surrender, and he will make demands of you that in the beginning you thought, surely I would say no to. Let me pray for us.